Jeremiah chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 6, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. We've got a real challenging passage before us this morning. We are going to get through it, although I'm confident. It says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, the word of the Lord declares, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you, I will take you. From a city, or one from a city, and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered to it. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. But I said, How can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land and a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for for they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, For you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. This morning we're going to 
look at a very full passage that's going to introduce some strong themes that we're going to be seeing carried into the balance of Jeremiah. I know you've heard me say that regularly throughout these first few messages, but that's really what we're doing is being introduced to themes, and it's taking me a little bit more time to get through these early chapters because of that. Um, As we get later on in Jeremiah, I'll be referencing back to some of these, and we'll be moving a little more quickly, I believe, Um, but don't hold me to that because I might get to those passages if I'm more than I anticipated there. But uh, we want to tackle a pretty significant portion of Scripture, and we actually have three themes that we want to follow in the midst of this and try to uh, distinguish them. We have here... Uh, the beginning of um, uh, the Messianic promises that are going to be in Jeremiah. We have that here really for the first time in fullness where we have what is anticipated for Israel well down the road. Uh, Remember, we are really dealing with Judah, but God uh, still has his mind on a unified nation into uh, the future uh, where he will reign in Jerusalem. And he is here in chapter 3, very early on, really, in Jeremiah, introducing that idea. We also are going to have uh, the first real, uh, within the context of the prophecies, uh, a response and, or, uh, of Jeremiah, where he himself is touched so significantly by the message that he senses the need that he must respond. He must give answer, if not for himself, or if not, you know, if the people won't, he'll do it himself for them. Um, but, and so we're going to have that at the end of chapter 3. Uh, but we also have here uh, a very strong uh, declaration of the familial relationship between God and Israel. And uh, we're going to connect this to some degree with what you've been studying in, in Sunday school for the adults in Hebrews as well as we see the powerful working of the love of God towards his people uh, in a very sorry condition. And we are going to distinguish between national Judah, national Israel, and individual Judah and Israel. Those are the people that are in them um, and what God's plans are. And again, uh, a lot to cover in, in a relatively short time. Uh, and uh, I feel like we want to go through these and see them, how they develop together. Um, It would be really easy for me to compartmentalize them, but Jeremiah doesn't do that, and I don't want us to get in the idea of that. They are all linked together. The, The future of Israel is linked to the contractual relationship that God has with her that he is bound by, even though they don't feel bound by it. Um, And the response of the individual to that um, is powerful. And uh, it's the fact that here in the nation that has gone horribly bad, there are some people who are extremely sensitive to what this familial contract involves and what it means for them and why, how badly they have tarnished it, and yet God stands by it. And so these are unrelated uh, facets. They're all right here in the same passage, and so I want to deal with them in that fashion rather than breaking them up too much in our minds by separating them by many weeks. And so before we look into this, let's go, Lord, in prayer together uh, this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, and we again thank you for your word before us, and we pray that as we look into it together 
that your spirit might guide us uh, into your truth and into its application, the wisdom of it uh, in our lives. And Lord, we do uh, thank you. You've raised up men such as Jeremiah to proclaim your truth with the hope that men would uh, turn and relent, that you might relent from the judgment that we deserve. And Lord, we pray that we might be more receptive today than the populace there of those lands so long ago. And Lord, we thank you that there is a future um, tied to the familial relationship that you have granted even to us who have been grafted in. And we thank you for that. And we pray as we study today that you might, again, work in our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start off by comparing and contrasting a couple of countries. Um, God is going to confront Judah with history, recent history of what they have seen going on up in the northern nation of Israel. Remember the ten tribes are to the north, the two tribes to the south, and northern tribes called Israel, southern tribes called Judah. This is a time period shortly after the Salmonic uh, reign. Um, where his son tried to put the squeeze on and the northern tribes rebelled. And, and, um, and so we had the dividing of the kingdom uh, in those days. And so uh, God had been dealing with Israel, and there was a whole group of, of uh, the minor prophets particularly that addressed some of those issues. And so uh, they addressed Israel to the north, and they were dealing with that. And of course, uh, some of our most famous prophets that we know of in historically, we're dealing with northern Israel. When you read about Elijah up there at Mount Carmel, that is northern Israel. That is up in the Megiddo Valley, and that's the north end of of uh, of um, is of the Palestine, Palestine of, of the Canaan of the Promised Land, and so that was the place of the ten tribes. And so he's up there already that early on dealing with the. Uh, idolatry and the and the Baal worship that is going on there. And so we're coming into Jeremiah with extensive history. And Judah's been able to sit back and watch all of this. And God says, you've watched backsliding Israel. And we're going to talk about that term a little bit, um, as well as the other term that's going to be used here. And they're going to intermingle, um, but they are distinguishable. Even though they have a similar root Hebrew word, they are distinguishable and so, and that's what your translators are trying to do in using different words for one compared, con, uh, one describing, there we go, describing Israel, one describing Judah. And so he says, here, you've watched backsliding Israel. You've watched them go into idolatry, and you've watched how I sent prophets after them, and I called them to myself. I invited them to repentance. They resisted that. They killed the prophets. They hunted them. They, they resisted the, the truth. They didn't want to hear it. I sent them over and over again, and I was delivering patient, but as a, as a loving husband. Um, but finally, they were so bad that I had to just break that relationship with them. They continue to commit adultery, and that is not a, not, this is spiritual adultery we have. And so when we start thinking of false worship as adulterous, uh, as violating uh, a relationship that we have with God, 
So he says, I put her away with a divorce. So I've done all of this thing. I, I have sent Israel off into captivity. I've turned my back on them. I have uh, uh, demonstrated that I will not tolerate this, that there is a breaking point of my willingness to allow this to happen in my land. There is a time when I said, enough's enough, and now I'm going to have to treat you as a rejected people. And so backsliding Israel got the prophet. They got the full treatment. Um, They had all the miracles of God in their midst to try to draw them um, both positively and to warn them negatively uh, to get them back in a relationship. They resisted. They end up being taken away by Sargon II of the Assyrians and drug off to the north. And they're largely gone. Many, many of them are slain. Um, and uh, when we talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel, this is when they got lost. Is when they got drug off and they were disseminated among the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and really we don't find them coming back uh, quite the same way as we find Judah coming back. And in fact, in our text here today, it says that that's not how it's going to happen. It's not going to happen uh, in a large uh, return like we find with Judah. Judah's going to have a large return 70 years after her beginning of her captivity uh, out of Babylon and really Persia. And so we're going to have uh, this very slow, in fact, uh, if you jump way ahead to chapter 14, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 14, return all backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. One and two at a time, you'll, you'll kind of trickle back in. And that's very different than Judah, who is going to come back in mass, really, uh, well, in two or three large movements there under Zerubbabel, and then, of course, under Nehemiah and under Ezra. And so we have these returns uh, coming out of Persia. But uh, for the ten tribes of Israel, uh, they've... When God says he gave them a certificate of divorce, he turned his back on them. They were uh, largely uh, absorbed into the Assyrian nation. They were then scattered abroad. They would come back one and two at a time. Uh, And even today, when we talk about Israel, we usually talk about the Jews. When you talk about Jews, you're not talking about the ten tribes. You're talking about Judah. So even today, we think of Israel, we say, well, the Jews, the Jews, and you go to Jesus' time. What do they talk about? The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. What do the Romans all talk about? He's king of the Jews. Why? Because those ten tribes of Israel were kind of, were, were kind of lost. They were, they were just scattered around, and some were in Jerusalem, some were around. Um, we find people of different tribes, the tribe of Levi and, and, and uh, uh, tribe Benjamin. We find some of those people um, but uh, the identification is very clear that it was largely only Judah that fully returned in that sense of being identifiable as a people uh, or as a nation. And so God says, you've seen how I treated Israel. You saw that. You saw how hard my hand was against them, how resistant they were, and this he describes as backsliding Israel. And then he comes to look at them. And you might think, well, Judah must be a better condition because God tolerated it longer. But what we find, rather, is that we have a handful of kings that responded to God. And Josiah is going to be one of them. Of course, Hezekiah is another one that were responsive. They repented, and that 
postpone God's judgment. Uh, and remember that it was Assyria that had Jerusalem surrounded and cut off. And God was ready to destroy her right there. I mean, he was ready to send her off by the same uh, instrument that he used to deal with Israel to the north. He's going to use to deal with Judah. But then we have a turning to the Lord. And uh, suddenly God brings a disruption. They say, we're going to trust in the Lord. And God empties the camp. And remember the, the lepers that came in and found it and said, we can't keep this to ourselves. We've got to go back in and tell everybody that the camp is gone and that we can spoil the land. And so God responded, and that delayed it. But God was recognizing, looking at the hearts all along this, but he's showing his willingness. He wanted to give evidence that if you'll just repent, even if it's just at the royal level, I'll respond. I'll hold back what you deserve. I'll show you mercy if you'll just respond. So Judah had lots of opportunities. This wasn't something done in the corner. They were well aware of what was going on up there in the north. And it did influence them all the way down as Assyria came down and swept through much of Judah. And so God says, look, you had all of this exposure to what happened up there, to backsliding Israel. Um, but you didn't respond. In fact, you committed the same sins and even worse. And it's worse because you knew what would be the outcome. You knew this would be the conclusion. You saw it and you didn't learn from the example of her and he uses a slightly different, a little more than a slightly different word to describe Judah, uh, the sister of Israel. It says, she was backsliding, but you as a nation are treacherous. And it's these two words I want to distinguish this tonight, today a uh, little bit and to also wrap it into some of our idea of, of um, uh, security of the believers and things like that. Uh, backsliding Israel was not that they were ignorant, because certainly God did send prophets and, and the word of the Lord to them, but it was a matter that they had slid into this. And remember, if you do, and if you don't, I'll help you here a little bit. Um, Israel was in a time of great wealth. Um, they had all the amenities up there in those northern uh, regions uh, it says that they lived in paneled houses. They had summer homes. Um, they were living the American dream, and they weren't even in America. Um, and they were there. They had all the stuff. And in the midst of all that wealth, in the midst of all that stuff, all those fancy homes and boats and cars, oh, no, um, all that, <laughs> sorry, all that, <laughs> it's just they had the four-legged kind instead of the four-wheeled kind. But... Um, all that they just slid into. And that's why God call, uses this term, and the, and the translators use this term, um, is that they just slid into it. They became complacent. And in all their wealth, they thought that they were just automatically blessed, and God bless us, and so God has blessed us. We have all, you know, our granaries are full, and our houses are beautiful, and our and our our lives are just comfortable and they just slid into this. And that sliding was away from God. And it brought them into this worship of Baal and, and 
whether it was a gradual slide, I think it started that way, but it obviously picked up a lot of speed by the time we get to Jezebel and that period of Elijah. Um, we find that they had just been swallowed up in this, and, and they didn't have the leadership royally like Judah did. They didn't have godly kings. Remember that their whole premise was, we don't want our people to have to take a pilgrimage down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship. So we're going to set up our own place up here in Israel to worship. And the problems that caused. But remember, their intention was to worship the God of Israel, but not to have to go to Jerusalem. And so they hadn't denied God. Remember, we, we looked at they hadn't rejected God. They had just become materialistic and, and the they had kind of compromised themselves with the balls. And if you read through some of the prophets, the big issue with them was that they still claimed to be the people of God. Um, and they wanted to do it one day a week, maybe two days a week. And the other days of the week, they were okay being having balls around in the high places, in the, in the groves of trees. And they would go in and worship there as well. Um, and they were syncretistic. And, and, and just, it's... It, it's not that we're denying God, we're just also having this. And he compares it to a marital relationship. Do you think that would be okay if, well, I love you, dear, but I also love all these other men. Is that okay? You all right with that? Um, and God says, I'm not okay with that. I designed it one man, one woman. That's the intention. Uh, men perverted that to some degree, and we had plurality of spouses there uh, in the Old Testament record, of course, and, and, uh, but that wasn't God's intent. And God says, that's not something I'm going to, can't tolerate forever. And so he sends the prophets, sends the judgment because they are refusal to repent. But they had slid into that, and it was almost a darkening, uh, a, a time that they just, by the time they realized it was, they were in the mud, they were caught. And God says, Israel's backslid. But you, Judah, are a different story. I have a different word for you. I have a word called treacherous for you. And he uses that over and over again to refer to Judah. Uh, you are the treacherous one. Um, that is, you have schemed this whole thing. You have purposefully made this happen. Treachery is a planned event. It is, it is schemed. It is something that is, that is, uh, that is fostered and, and formulated in the mind and in the heart well before the actions. It was understood what was going on. They, it wasn't just... Um, we weren't paying attention and suddenly we were trapped in this muck. Oh no, that's not what happened to Judah. That's what happened to Israel, but that's not what happened to Judah. Judah schemed this whole thing. They looked around and they said, well, we can go to Egypt, we can, we can get allies there, and, and we find them engaging in this treachery that even while they're watching God deal with her sister to the north, they shrugged it off and said, we can fool God. They weren't very good at it up there. Uh, we can be a lot better at it. And they defiled the land, it says, and they, they acted treacherously. And then when God confronts them, they feign 
And that's the word pretense. They feign repentance. Oh, yes, we're so sorry. Well, I'm pretty sure Hezekiah was sorry. And Josiah was sorry and did want to lead the people. But as a people group, remember, there's a difference between the nation and the individuals within the nation. As a people, they weren't. They feigned it. They, they, they pretended. They had pretense. And in their hearts, they weren't really repentant, but they went through all the acts of repentance and it says that um, this was what was going on. They were really following their own evil hearts and out of pretense, they claimed to turn to God exteriorly, but their heart was still divided. And so we get down to verse 11, and here's the conclusion of this relationship. It says, Lord says, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And then we're going to have a message for Israel here tucked into Jeremiah that's really focused on Judah. Um, before we go into the future of Judah, we're going to talk about Israel first. But let, let's talk about this relationship. Backsliding Israel ends up being more righteous than treacherous Judah in God's eyes. And this is always something very difficult for us to really distinguish. It's not difficult for God, and I think it's probably less difficult for us if we had more intimacy with one another and honesty with ourselves even, uh, of being able to distinguish between the treacherous and the backslidden. And it is, you say, well, why is that important? Because sin is sin, isn't it? Um, Yes, but one is going to be much more responsive to the message of God than the other, than the working of God, the dealings of God, than the other. The one who has slid into that, who has uh, like the frog in the kettle sort of thing, that just the water kept getting warmer and warmer and warmer, and we didn't realize it until it was suddenly I'm cooking, um, because we just adjusted uh, there's a real danger there because there can be a genuine love for God that is simply tainted by all the stuff around us. And this, I want to go into the New Testament a little bit uh, and talk about the sower and the soils and Hebrews as well, and James and other passages, uh, and also our Lord's words. And so let's go to the Lord's words first with this soil, uh, the, the sower and the soil. We have this seed planted in... Soil that is full of weeds. And that's what I like to compare Israel to. They got weeded out. That doesn't sound like they got pulled, but they got enveloped by weeds that choked them. They grew up together, and in their prosperity, they lost track of what was important. And they lost track of the need to have a genuine act of worship. They had been separated somewhat from the place of worship, the temple, um, yet they still attempted to do some things for God. But they had been enveloped with the weeds of worldliness, especially of material things. Um, And the, the attitudes of the society around them, and they succumbed to that. And when the prophets came and declared their messages, they were not heard. They weren't, they weren't responded to because in many senses they had justified themselves. They have rationalized it away. 
well, we're not as bad as, we, we still follow the Lord somewhat, we, st- we try hard. Well, they weren't trying hard, they were trying a little, one day a week. And so they were resistant. But then when God's hand came upon them, we find that from God's perspective, uh, they were broken. They were a broken people that we don't see in Judah. Not until well into their captivity. But the evidence is from God's description here is that Israel, um, once they were in that captivity in Syria, they were broken. And God says there's a righteousness there that Judah doesn't share. And that is that they um, were just, had the weeds grow up with them and were unwilling. I'm not going to, ready, quite ready to say incapable, but they were unwilling to distinguish between the weeds and the true plants and they became unfruitful to God. And this is the condition of backsliding. And we use this term today, and I want to caution us to be careful how often we use it. Uh, the backslidden state is one where we have gone into sin, but have not rejected God. Uh, we have largely just gone into it for whatever reason. Sometimes it just catches us. Sometimes we just become casual with our faith. It's just something that we can take or leave and... You know, I'm not really rejecting God. I don't say he doesn't exist. I just, and, and most backs, truly backslidden people are very sensitive to it. That is, they have a guilt. They, they know. They know that they're not right with God, and they'll usually declare it. They'll say, I, I know I'm not really right with God, but... And it's those buts that get them into so much trouble. Those excuses, those rationalizations. That's what Israel is doing. They just rationalize away. No, no, no. We're we're the people of God, and we do worship, and 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 we do offer sacrifices. We go over there to Gilgal or some of the other northern areas, Dan, and and we we have our things. Um, they rationalize it away, and they divorce themselves from listening to the genuine faith that they're being called to, because of their own sin, because they have grown comfortable in their sin, in their wealth in their uh, uh, covetousness, in their idolatry. They've just grown comfortable in it. And in that condition, um, they haven't really denied God, but they're in a condition where they haven't really planned to succeed. And if you ignore your faith, if you... Stop spending time in God's word. Stop spending time around God's people. Stop being uh, uh, thoughtful in your walk with the Lord. Um, I assure you that like Israel, the world will come in and encamp in your life. It just will. Your flesh is too weak and God knows that. He knows that you are made of dirt. And it just will. It is kind of like the second law of thermodynamics, of entropy. Everything goes to disorder. That without energy being poured in, um, you will just go to the lowest order. And we continue to pour energy into our faith and into 
our walk with God because the natural inclination of our heart is to slide towards the world because it's right there, isn't it? I mean, it's always there. It's in front of us. It's, it's, it's being thrown at us constantly. Um, all of our peers around us at work are, are following after us. It's the flow, and it's just so easy to just become a, a little thing in the river and flow down the stream. And that's why we break out these big old oars and we go, this is Christian life is a lot of work because you're going against a pretty strong stream that maybe you've never gone against before. And it is a lot of work. But to sustain your progress requires you to stand. And to not be enveloped by that stream. To not let those weeds come in and choke out our walk with God. And these individuals who have gotten into that point, I'm convinced, are generally responsive when God comes in and slaps them up the side of the head. Because they still have that conscience of guiltiness. Because it, it just um, it wasn't that they wanted to do evil against God. They just got ensnared. And the Bible talks about this ensnaring, that we need to be careful of that because that is the reality of the world around us is to ensnare us by tapping that one or two or three very, very fundamental urges of life and, and seek to draw us into sins that we really had no intention of getting into but how easy it is to slide into them, isn't it? And to just... Even though, and that, but when you sit down, take an assessment of your life, you say, no, I know I'm not really living for the Lord. But I don't know how to get out of this anymore because it's just who I am. But when God comes in and radically disrupts that, d- disturbs you, and then you can get sick and tired of it all, of the sin, and recognize I've got to invest myself in my relationship with God. And, and many individuals in Israel did that. Unfortunately, they did that in places like Assyria, outside of the land of Israel. We find God talking about that there is a more righteous condition there, that these individuals um, are more righteous in God's sight than the treacherous ones. And again, their sins are going to look almost identical. In terms of their activity, you can't distinguish these two. And God is really talking about the heart that this body slid into it because they just started looking around. And they didn't necessarily plan it, but it it happened because they were not diligent to prevent it from happening. But for Judah, when God is waving red flags and seeing all the things happening up there in Israel. And Judah not only allows it to happen, but plans for it to happen, that they are committing an act of treason. That is, they are coming into the relationship with God, and they're going to be abusive in it. They're going to seek to trick God 
into thinking that they're okay. And, and they're, if this didn't happen just by a gradual slide into idolatry like Israel. They intended for this. This was their plan for some time. This was something that they had, they had as I said, schemed over. They had spent thought, assigned thought to this. And this act of treason was one of seeking to do injury and, and use the relationship with God uh, dishonestly so that they could involve themselves in sin and seek to trick God that somehow they were still trying to behave like his children when they really weren't. And the foolishness of thinking they could trick God over that And God says, you have done this treacherously. You saw, and yet you didn't respond. And that hardness to say, I'm going to plan for this sin and this evil, and I'm also going to simultaneously plan for this work of deception. And you really don't find that up in the northern land. But you did find it in Judah going on, this planned deception that we're going to plan for this sin, we're going to plan for the contingencies of of this false repentance, and we're going to uh, try to uh, work both sides, so to speak. And God says this treachery is something that demands something from me. I'm going to have to respond. And most of the rest of Jeremiah is God responding to Judah's treachery. And again, uh, many of Judah die. Uh, and those that are carried away, I'll contend, are among, for the most part, are among the individuals that were responsive, that, that weren't involved in that. And those men that we know, and I've already named some of them, uh, as well as Daniel and his friends and, and others that were godly men and were carried away as the princes and as the best of Israel or of Judah, um, but they were also among the godly of Judah. But as a nation, they had thought this thing through. And you're going to hear the words throughout Jeremiah. You're going to hear Israel's verbiage of what it means to be treacherous. Um, And I've already referenced this passage Timing. It's going to be a major series of, it's not one of the messages, it's going to be multiple messages um, coming up where they just say, that is hopeless. They hear the whole plan of God from the prophets, and their statement to the prophet is, that won't work. We're going to do it our way. It's not that they hadn't been confronted or had gotten soft. It's not like it snuck up on them and they weren't paying attention. They, full awareness of the whole circumstances, their response to God and God's plan of action for them to show repentance is, that's not going to work. That's hopeless. We'll do it our way. That is treachery. That is very different than making uh, rationalizations for it or just denial. Israel was largely in denial. No, that's not true. They told the prophets, no, um, we're not that. That's not, that's not who we are. They were just in denial, and they made excuses. But for, Israel, for Judah, Judah over here very differently said, 
we're going to do it our way. Your way, God, is hopeless. Your way, Lord, doesn't make sense. It won't work. Our way will work. And that is the treachery of it. It wasn't ignorance. It wasn't they weren't paying attention. It wasn't that they, they didn't think it applied to them. Oh, no. They knew it applied to them. They knew what they were engaged in. And they were fully committed to persisting in that activity. And they rejected God's plan. And that's what made them in this condition that Jeremiah is going to be describing throughout the balance of the book. And here we have that distinction. This is an individual who is not just caught in sin. It didn't just come up and grab him and drag him into it. This is a person who is fully committed to it, who recognizes it, knows what it is, and intends to persist in this. That in the course of that is willing to turn to God and say, your ways don't work. And it is those kinds of individuals that God is warning us about in the book of Hebrews and it is that soil that takes no root and there is no rootedness and the sun comes up and it, that plant dies because it was treasonous. It tricked us. It tricked us into thinking it was a healthy plant but then we find out it had no roots and as soon as it gets tested it's dead because it wasn't rooted. There was nothing changed in the heart. It had not formed itself. It was all external and internal in the heart. There was only pretending. And if you don't think you can pretend to yourself, you haven't read Jeremiah much. We're going to get to Jeremiah 17, right? Verse 9, the heart is deceitful. And Jeremiah is all about the heart. This is a guy that cries a lot and he's all heart. And he talks about the heart in this passage as well. What's going on in your heart? Well, you're treachery. You have treachery in your heart. That's what's going on. And it's hard for us because we can't see the heart. This person's sin looks like that person's sin. The sins are identical. They're up in the groves worshiping trees. These guys are in the groves worshiping trees. These guys built, had rocks that they carved and prayed to. These guys had rocks they carved to pray to. These people were, sleep, were having adulterous affairs. These people were having and their sins looked identical but their hearts God distinguished. So these are backslidden hearts that once I punish them, they'll respond. These hearts are not. They are treacherous hearts. They're not going to respond. And those people are in a scary place. God points them out that in this, and when we get later on, again, the rest, the balance of chapter 3 is really about Israel, not about Judah. Um, so we really have to come back to this idea of what goes on with the treacherous heart later. But I want to distinguish that and say and, and identify that in this condition, God is still very much committed to Judah, but Judah has gone against God. Not just gone into sin. They have gone against God. And those are two different conditions. When you've gone into sin, I am convinced that you are still very much probably a believer. And the, in the term backslidden, 
applies and you are redeemable. You are ready to be brought back. You simply need to come to that bottom level, whatever that is, whatever breaks you and, and recognizes that, you know, I've been living with all this guilt all this time and I just need to, to just get back. I need to get back to my Savior. But the treacherous heart, <laughs> I think that's what we find described for us uh, in some New Testament passages that we struggle with, the plants that die, the, the fallen away that can't be brought back again to repentance, that want to crucify the Lord all over again. And we struggle with those passages, but I'm convinced that they're referring to those with the treacherous heart that isn't just in the... The, the sins are identical. They, they look the same because they're the same actions. But the heart of these people has no guilt in it. They are treacherous in it. They are conniving in it. They are scheming in it. They are putting up pretenses of repentance even, of, of religiousness, of spiritual verbiage, but in their heart that's divided, they're already planning their next sinful act. Even as they claim to be repenting to us, they're already committed fully to persisting in it. And in their heart, they have genuinely said, God's way doesn't work. And those are in grave danger. And when I say that, I do not mean possibly. I mean they are in grave danger. And this is what Hebrews and James and and Christ talked about. when he says, don't let that. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians, that I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to miss the prize. I'm going to keep working at this Christian life because even Paul, late in his life, was still concerned that he could go into this treacherous heart. And so the warnings are real. And too many of us are willing to take a a Christian in sin and say, oh, they're just backslidden. But the fact is, is that unless you can know their heart it is difficult to distinguish between whether they are backslidden or whether they are in treason. Or they are going against God. They are purposing in their heart to violate Him and to reject Him. And that was, is what's going on in Judah. They were purposing in their heart, ha, God can't do that to us. God's ways won't work. We're going to go our way. We're going to do whatever our heart desires. And that's very different than a man who is caught in sin. And again, the actions look the same. But this person is dealing with guilt and the, and the whole notion that he knows he is not right and that someday this needs to be addressed in his life. Um, whether he thinks those thoughts as he's sinning or not isn't relevant. He knows that these are areas of life that can't persist. And God comes in and shatters him and he responds. But the treacherous heart, remember that Israel surrounded by Assyria. They've been surrounded by Assyria. And because they were delivered that time, they go, ha, see, couldn't do it to us, could you? That arrogance in every treacherous heart is full of it. 
And so we call you to righteousness, and I'm not going to get to the second half of my message. We call you to righteousness because we call you to work your Christian life, to press on, because the danger is real. And you can say, well, I'm still forgivable because I'm just a backslidden Christian, and I just want you to recognize that there is such a fine line between redeemable over here, I don't know why they're always redeemable on this. Is this my right hand? I always go that way. And the unredeemable. Next week I'll switch it around. All of you will want to sit over there. All of you know. <laughs> there is such a fine line. I think we need to share Paul's sentiment. Do you ever want to get to the point where your heart is treacherous against God? God says, you're one of the most wicked there is. Because you are now planning against me, plotting sin, plotting rebellion. Not just rebellious because it just blurts out because you're human, but plotting it. And I believe I've seen both of these in my ministry. I've seen individuals that plot it. And I've seen individuals that are just caught in it. And some of those that we've had church discipline on fall in both categories. Some are over here and some are over there. And we discipline them both because they're both involved in the same sin and we leave them to God because we do not see the hearts but we see some evidence of similarity that over here there's that scheming and that fakeness and that that uh, deceptiveness in that attitude, that arrogance that says, I'm doing it this way and your way won't work versus that one that just says, I just am caught in it and I, I'm not getting out. So how do we stop from being in one of these, of playing with that line is to not be on either one of these two sides. Be over there. Go to that part. Go to righteousness. Walk over there. Walk in the ways of the Lord. Invest yourself in your Christian life with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Bible says. And Paul says, I'm going to press on. I'm going to forget what is behind, and I'm looking forward, and I want to attain to that which Christ has attained for me, the resurrection of the dead. I want to press to that and press to that and press. I know it's a lot of work. I know it's against the stream, and it's the easiest thing in the world to just drop the oars and just float down the river. Right? The problem is that river's got like a thousand-foot waterfall coming, Right? Easiest thing in the world. Takes no effort to go over a waterfall. None. It takes a lot of effort to avoid it and to get up the stream. And sometimes that's hard work. Sometimes you're going upstream against a swift current, and sometimes it just seems like it's nice paddling, right? Because it's kind of calm. And that's just the the ebbs and flows of life. But when the current gets strong, and I believe it is among the strongest in our day that I've seen at least in 50 years, we have a current to fight. And I just find too many Christians are dropping oars and just letting go. Say, oh, you can't fight it. And just whoosh. And those are backslidden believers who have surrendered. 
But then there are some who are treacherous in it, like Judah. And they know. And they scheme and plot and are doing what their own evil heart is wants, and they know it. And rightly, in verse 17, does God end by saying, you want to know what the millennial kingdom is like? Here's what it's like. Look at the last sentence in the verse. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. This is a heart book. So we come and that's what the future holds for us. We're looking for that time when no one is going to follow, no one of Israel is going to follow the dictates of their evil hearts. And even the house of Judah is going to join the house of Israel. They're going to come together out of the land of the north to, an, to the inheritance. But it's a whole new generation because this one is lost. And they are going to be fully broken. God is raising up Babylon to do it. But in the midst of this, we have a third facet. What does God hold out there for the broken backslider? He offers an invitation. Return. Come back. I have been angry at you. I've written you a certificate of divorce. I have sent you off into exile. You are slaves and come back. You have to, verse 13 is a powerful description of what a backslider needs to do. Acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You've scattered your charms to the indeities under every green tree. You have not obeyed my voice. You're acknowledging your sin, specifying it, recognizing that your sin ultimately is against God and that it is God that you must obey. That's what it means to return. And God says, I'm, even though I wrote to a certificate of divorce on a legal basis in my heart, I'm still married to you. I'm still... I'm still I'm still holding myself in my heart to this relationship that we have. You are my family. You are mine. And so verse 15, I'll give you shepherds according to my heart. Isn't that great? Now God's heart's involved, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That you come and then God can say, now I can feed you. Now I can feed you. Now you've returned. You've acknowledged your iniquity. You've acknowledged your sin. You recognize that it's a sin against the Lord, that it's the Lord you need to obey now, then God comes in with his mercy and says, now I'll feed you. Now you're ready to listen to all those messages that were so boring before, and now you can't wait to hear them. I'm convinced that most of what makes my messages boring is the listener's sin. Sorry. When we hear the word of the Lord, why is the Bible boring? Because of your sin. Why don't you get anything out of it? Because of your sin. The first thing God says is, once you acknowledge your sin and want to obey me, once that's your full-heartedness, now you want to know God's heart and you go, I need some meat. 
(laughs) I need to be taught. I need to hear it. I want to read it. I want to know it. The past week, no less than three times did I hear references of people saying, uh, at my church we're getting nothing. Twice directly to me, once to my daughter. And I just, my response was just to kind of, I'm sorry. But maybe the reason we stopped teaching God's heart is because we're complicit in the sin. And really the treachery isn't just out there in the people. The treachery that Jeremiah and God are talking about here is in the priesthood and in the prophets, in the preachers. They're not preaching the truth of God because they don't believe it works. You know who they believe works? Wall Street works. Hollywood works. Those mechanisms work. Marketing works. Preaching the truth? That doesn't work. (laughs) And I've come across people who want to hear truth and they can't get it. Why? Because we're in this condition and God waits for us to repent and then says, I'll send you shepherds that'll give you my heart. And in that condition, they'll feed you with knowledge and understanding. And that is a prelude, by the way, to the promises of the millennial kingdom. Isn't that great? The prelude, and I I like to think of the shepherds as the 144,000 that are preparing Israel to receive Jesus Christ. What do they do? They go everywhere they go and they talk about Jesus. Everywhere, till they die. They talk about Jesus. 144,000 during the seven years of God's wrath, shepherds teaching the people about God. And while they're not responsive then, when Christ does show up, all Israel responds and says, oh, this is what they're talking about. And we know his heart. But for us in our condition, we stand there and we say, well, what's keeping me from the heart of God is my own sin. And if we persist in it, yes, you run the danger of going from being a backslidden Christian into a realm where I and God's word and no godly person around you is going to Talk about your security of your faith. Because there becomes a treacherousness in your heart that we're wary of and should be. So to guard you from the treacherous heart, the easiest way to guard yourself from that is to guard yourself from the backslidden one and not let that happen so that this doesn't happen. And we work very hard as soon as we see the evidence of backsliding to try to spur one another on to love and the good deeds because sometimes you, your hands slip off those oars as you're doing it upstream and you need someone to come in and grab them and do them with you. But oh, don't surrender and just float down with the current of this world because its end is destruction. So Israel and Judah form a very close comparison and a contrast for us that we have today. 
and it calls us and reminds us that when we get in this state, even in the earliest stages, the earlier the better, I return and seek God's mercy, acknowledge my sin, and obey God's voice, that he will send me shepherds to teach me his heart so I could have the knowledge and understanding to persist in my faith. And this is driven not by any one man's experience, but by the promises of God. And so it holds and stands. And we are well warned. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for your love for Israel, for Judah, all that you did to seek to bring them back to yourself. And Lord, we pray for, first of all, each one here, that you might keep us from sin. That we might follow your word and guard ourselves from temptation and recognize our own weaknesses and the, how easy it is to slide into the sins of this world without even thinking about it. And so Lord, guard us from that, from sliding back away from righteousness into worldliness because we weren't paying attention to our walk with you. And then, Lord, we pray for those that we are today still under discipline from this church. We don't know their hearts. We see some evidences that some were of a treacherous sort and some are simply caught in sin. Lord, you know their hearts, and we pray you might work in their lives. That those caught in sin might be broken, that they might come to repentance. And Lord, we pray also that you might guard this pulpit from the treason, proclaiming man's ideas and the evil thoughts of our hearts instead of are so attractive, by the way, to so many. Lord, guard us from it. That we might speak your truth in its fullness and in all of its difficulties. Lord, give us the attitude, I pray, to chew our food. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.